Father, thank you for this book. Thank you that it's your word to us, to speak to us. Thank you that um, most people here this evening who are uh, sitting on these seats, they know you, they would say that they love you and that they want to live for you, and this book is going to teach us a little bit of how to do that. Help us to honor you uh, with open hearts that are looking to hear you speak from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. River that goes through India and Bangladesh. Anyone? Big river. Anybody knows the name of that? The? Ganges. Okay, is that how you say it? Because I, you know, I know in Portuguese, Ganges, but that doesn't sound right in English, does it? Ganges. Anyway, sounds like a disease. But speaking of that, <laughs> I have discovered that along that river, wherever I put the clicker now, along that river, right, 33 massive sewage drains pouring into the river 250 million liters of sewage water. Is that possible? I mean, I looked it up on the internet. Is that even possible? That's outrageous, right, of sewage water. And at some junctures, it's so polluted, it said, that there's no aquatic life. Or there's, no, there's nothing living in that section. <laughs> I mean, you look at that, and you just, the mind boggles. And yet some people bathe in the river. That's mad, isn't it, when you come to think about it? Leviticus has been showing us that our sin pollutes so intensely. There is no life. There is no relationship with God. That that pollution of sin, that impurity of sin that we swim in, that is within our hearts, so separates us from God. We could never know him. He could never be our king. Because we would be the people who are dirty, polluted away from him. But we've also begun to see in the book of Leviticus that he provides a way for us to be clean. And that's what I've been enjoying. Um, knowing that you, he can be your king too. So see if you remember, as you have your Bible open in front of you and you look at chapter 1, see if you remember what we've talked about so far. The burnt offering. You've become aware um, of your uh, sin in a special way. It's a voluntary offering, the first three are. And you don't have to do this, but you want to honor God and express your thanks because he is the God who forgives. And you take this expensive offering to the tabernacle. Oh, yes, to the tabernacle. Here's our, our rendition, yeah, for some of you who are new. <laughs> this, is, this is one way uh, to look at the tabernacle. You take it to the tabernacle, okay? And you see your money, your possession burnt to a crisp. And you are glad because you're pleasing the Lord. It's a pleasing aroma to him, voluntary offering. You go into chapter 2 and you talk about the grain offering, also known as the tribute offering, because you see him as your king and out of your thankfulness to him, you want to bring tribute. Another word uh, for that uh, translation in chapter 2. And then you get to the peace offering, where you're now in a relationship with the king and you want to just enjoy a banquet before his presence. And we talked about finest flour, we talked about that favorite memory verse, the fat belongs to the Lord. Wonderful. 
And those three offerings were voluntary. Now we speak of the two out of the big five here. The sin offering or the purification offering. And next week, the trespass offering or the guilt offering where that's not voluntary. You would know it would have been brought to your attention if you had sinned and you ought to do this in order to get atonement and forgiveness. And so the purification offering. Because there's this idea, we started thinking about pollution, that our sin pollutes God's tabernacle, his palace, his place of living among his people in the Old Testament is somehow affected by our sin, and so it needs to be cleansed. And we get a little something added here called ritual status, because you might have to uh, offer this offering, not just if you'd sin morally, but if you find yourself to be, according to Leviticus, in an impure state. It's hard to explain, and we haven't got uh, that much time uh, to explain everything in detail, but do come and talk to me, because I'd love to chat to any of you about any of this stuff. But think about ritual impurity like this. When can you vote in this country? You have to be a certain age. But what have you got to do through a little piece of paper? You have to register, haven't you? You know, you can't vote if you're not registered. It's nothing to do with your morality, or have you having done something wrong or right, but your status within, you know, the eyes of the law is either you can vote because you've done something, or you can't vote. In a similar way, when we talk about clean, unclean, pure, impure in the book of Leviticus, it's not because you've necessarily sinned against God, but you would be sinning if you didn't do something about what he wants to teach you through it. And we're going to talk about that. Because why am I telling you this? Because the purification offering was mandated, was demanded from you, if you're an Israelite and you wanted to maintain your relationship with God, even if you hadn't sinned, but if you were in a ritual state that was impure. And you look at what this offering is all about in chapter 4. Look at verse 20. This is repeated. In this way, the priest will make atonement for the community, and they will be forgiven. You look at verse 26, and you've got a similar tone being said there. He shall burn all the fat on the altar. In this way, the priest will make atonement for the leader's sin, and he will be forgiven. Atonement and forgiveness. Being pure before God. That's what it's all about here. And the way that you become clean is a bit weird to us. And I wish that Leviticus told us way more than it does. But here's what's weird. Cleaning is something that many of us don't necessarily enjoy or identify with. And one way to look at it is like this. Cleaning is a serious effort. And the things that we use to clean sometimes aren't obvious. I'm told by the internet that there is a miracle solution to most cleaning problems. Coca-Cola. I understand that if you have something rusted, soak it in Coke and then scrub it. I understand that if you have some gum, perhaps, has that ever happened to you? Gum in your hair? Gum in your hair? Anyone? Nobody. Oh, you have had no childhood. Well done, you guys. Yes. You know, gum in the hair. That's probably because when I was a kid, we were allowed gum in school. That's probably why the floor was paved with it. Um, but it will, it will sort you out. If you've got hair dye, and you need to dilute it, apparently Coke will do. I'm not getting paid to say this, by the way. Um, if you've got a clogged toilet, 
or it's got it's had a few too many skids there, and you've got to dilute some of those skids, you know? It's, uh, you know, the Leviticus has no, there's no barrier, okay? Wait until we get to um, um, uh, semen and menstrual blood and all that stuff later on. Anyway, just be looking forward to that. That's in Leviticus. Uh, do read that tonight. Do read it. And then talk to me. How does this point to Jesus? Yes, let's chat. It does. Apparently, you can put it in your clothes for stubborn stains. And you can put a little bit in your dishwasher. And it will just take off that extra grime. I don't know if any of this stuff is true. This is a weird way of thinking. Have you guys tried this? Try it. Try it. Tell me how it goes. Kids, try it. Don't ask your parents. Um, and so this, this weird way of thinking that's something that we use for a completely other different purpose, exists for a different purpose like Coke, can be used to clean. In the Bible, the idea here in the book of Leviticus is that blood is almost a disinfectant. A life for a life. That's what we've said in the burnt offering in chapter 1. Blood cleanses because God's honor, his laws have been broken and he is just and so he provides a way for another life to be lost instead of your life so that you can uh, be with him. And so cleansing blood, as I said, makes sense of some of the brilliant hymns like the one we've just sung. It's almost as if when you're reading it, we're saying, my life, my blood is spared by another life, blood punished because of my sin. Whereas Leviticus says in chapter 17, verse 11, for the life of a creature is in the blood, and I've given it to you to make atonement so that you can be at one with me, at one for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. And so that means every, when we're reading the, 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 the ritual now that we're going to describe, you're thinking sin pollutes God's palace, sin pollutes my relationship with him, and blood is a symbol of cleansing. And every week we've been talking about the ritual, we describe the ritual, what's going on, what does it mean for them then? When they talk about the reality that it points to in the work of the Lord Jesus, something he does so much better, and our response. I'm going to be cheeky, and as I talk about the ritual and the reality, I'm going to be putting the response in there. Don't judge me, okay? So what is it for? You can become impure, as I said, um, by missing the mark, by sinning morally or ritually. You look at verse 2 of uh, chapter 4, and it's for anyone who sins unintentionally. When anyone sins unintentionally, you find it there. What this already tells us about our God is that ignorance isn't bliss with Him. I've spoken to a few of you who unfortunately have discovered this the hard way. You didn't know that the speed limit was 30. You had been in a 40 zone. And very quickly, you had a fine to pay or a course to attend, which some of you actually thought wasn't so bad. Ignorance wasn't bliss. Just because you didn't know you had broken something, a rule, you still were guilty. You know that when you get into year seven and you forget this piece of kit, yeah, but you're new in year seven. You're new to secondary school. Well, what still happens? Detention. Exactly. Okay, your ignorance of that rule is not bliss. And so we find this uh, thing repeated here saying when they realize the sin that they've committed. You can scan your passage and see that throughout. Who is it for? You look at verse 3, you've got the anointed priest, the serving priest, probably the high priest. You look at verse 22, 
and you see a leader, a prominent leader of the community, perhaps one of the leaders of the tribes of Israel. You see in verse 27 the average member um, of a community. And what is it for? Verse 31 and onwards will remind us. Look at it. Do you have your Bibles open in front of you, uh, even if turned on on a phone? On airplane mode, though, so that you don't get notifications that will distract you. And look at verse 31 then. In this way, the priest will provide atonement for them, and they will be forgiven. Atonement and forgiveness, that's what it's all about. Although it does cover, if you look at chapter 5, intentional sins. Like, for example, if you should have spoken up in a court of law for the defense of another person and you didn't think to or you didn't um, do it, that's intentional, chose not to, you can still have your sin atoned for. And most curiously, which is why I told you about ritual impurity, look at chapter 5, verses 2 and 3. If you touch a carcass, a dead animal, or if you touch uncleanness, like if for whatever reason you sat somewhere where someone had menstruated blood on that seat, you become ritually unclean. And we can identify with this idea of needing to be purified, because I think you'll agree with me, we often don't know that we've messed up, right? We often can say something which actually was wrong, um, and we need someone else to come and tell us, and that's the current refrain here. I found through marriage that it's a great tool. A spouse is a great tool to show us when we have messed up. Kids, your parents are great tools to show you something you were unaware of. Um, when you've messed up and when you need to make amends because of how you made someone else feel. And the idea here is even an unintentional sin affects your relationship with God. And through this idea of ritual impurity, he teaches us lots of things. Let me just mention three quick things for you, okay, if you're taking notes. One is what can we learn by ritual states even if they're not moral? It's not because you sinned. Well, they teach us a new aspect of God's holiness. We've learned when we talk about uh, sin, offending God's honor, and us needing forgiveness, we see that in God's law, he shows that his character is good and perfect. Ritual states that don't have to do with sin necessarily show us that God is completely other than us. He is separate. And we learn that in every step of your Israelite day. The second thing that you learn is to reflect God's otherness, his holiness. Anyone coming into the nation of Israel would see that the way that you dress, the way that you live, how you speak, how you deal with um, the events of life, childbirth, whatever else, show that your God is different. He is other. So not only do they teach you that God is holy, they help you reflect God's holiness, but they show you that all of life is meant to be holy. Every moment of the day for the Israelite is a chance to say, I belong to God. Much like in Deuteronomy chapter 6, um, I don't know if I put it there, I don't think I put it there, um, but God is speaking to his people and he says, the commandments I give you, here's what I want you to do with them. Talk about them. Deuteronomy 6, 6. I want you to sit at home and talk about them. I want you to walk along the road and talk about them. I want you to, when you lie down, think about my commandments. When you get up, think about them as well. Tie them as symbols around your hands and around your foreheads. Write them on your door frames. All of your life belongs to me or none of your life belongs to me. And so that's what it's for, who it's for, what's involved in this ritual. We're going to read 
chapter 4, the first few verses, as we do, let's think about it. I've told you that the bull is the most expensive domesticated animal. And we see that the high priest, if he messes up unintentionally, his responsibility is great. And so you bring him to the tabernacle, okay? You bring him to the tabernacle, and at the entrance of the, I think, did you have another camera? I don't know if you did. Um, I zoomed in. There we go. You bring him to the entrance of the tabernacle, okay? And you're going to be the one that actually is going to slaughter the bull. You're going to be the one to shed his blood, to spill his blood. And you will see the value of that sacrifice. That's not real blood in case anyone is actually wondering, by the way. But there we go. So here's what happens then. You come into... Oh, there we go. We're back on easy worship. I can click now. Hold fire on the PowerPoint. I'm just going to stop touching the buttons right now. We're good now. Okay, okay. You bring it to the temple. Um, you bring your bull. And a uh, very, very cute picture there uh, for you from freebibleimages.com. Thank you very much for that. Um, it's inspected by the priest. You see the value um, of it. You bring it. It's blood that after it's drained. And you splash it upon uh, the curtain of the sanctuary. And you'll notice that there's a progression as you go that by the time you get to um, the average Joe in Israel, you don't have to splash the blood in the sanctuary because he's of a lower status. His sin has had a lower impact on the community of Israel than a person who is in authority. You sprinkle the blood on the altar of incense, which is located that, in that part of the tabernacle, and that's kind of symbolic of what's going on, the sprinkling, as opposed to drowning it in blood. And the remainder of the blood you bring to the altar of burnt offering. And there's a connection there with chapter 1, because in, through this offering, there's the forgiveness of sins, just like in chapter 1. And then you get all of the fat, and you're also going to give that to the Lord, because all the fat belongs to the Lord. It's the choice part of the animal, whether it's the fat in the intestine. Someone actually took the time to draw all of these and make them available for the burnt. I love that. That's so good. Um, the fat around the internal organs, you're going to bring that. The fat around the kidneys, you're going to bring that. The fat around the lobe of the liver, you're going to bring that too. All the choice parts of the animal. What do you do with the rest of the animal? The head, the legs, the hide. You take it outside the camp and you burn it. There's a copyright for you. Already I can tell you there are some lessons that we learn that are so incredible in this. We see, if you're taking notes, in this ritual, we all sin and sin leaves a mark leaves a mark that needs to be cleansed, erased by the sacrifice of an innocent life. We can identify with this concept because we often feel impure and dirty when we become aware of our sin. How many of us tonight can't identify with that feeling dirty after we've come, uh, become aware of a way in which we've hurt another person, even if unintentionally? Whether it was an unkind word that just... We blurted it out, and we sinned. It wasn't our intention, but we sinned. How many of us wouldn't have thought that lustful look, automatic, is autopilot, looked where you shouldn't and looked again? A fantasy that only happened in our mind but left a bitter taste before us and God, between us and God. 
And so we need atonement and forgiveness. We also learn that sin impacts our relationship with God, even when it's unintentional. We learn that not every sin is the same in the eyes of God. Where am I getting that from? We see here, as you scroll down, scroll down, some of you are on the phone, sorry, generational difference. Um, as you look physically at, on your paper Bibles, you see what happens when the priest sins, he offers a bull. You see what happens when one of Israel's leaders sins in verse 23? A male goat, the strongest animal, but of the flock. Different impact of his sin into the community. We see in verse 28 and verse 32, if an individual Israelite sins, they offer yet a lower animal, a female goat, perhaps the most abundant uh, flock animal at the time. You see that if you are poor, God still wants to forgive you because if you can't afford any of those things, look at verse uh, 7 of chapter 5. You can offer two doves, two pigeons. That's how we know Jesus' parents were poor. It's about the heart. It's so much about the heart and so much about God wanting to say, I want anyone to come and be a part of my family and be forgiven. This is so his heart that in chapter 5, verse 11, the very poorest can't even afford a dove. They can offer fine flour. But unlike chapter 3, okay, unlike chapter 2, sorry, when you offer the fine flour, there's no oil and there's no incense. Because our sin is meant to be something we are grieving over. It's not, there's no a pleasing aroma to the Lord this time. When you look at chapter 7, verse 30, which is kind of the counterpart, we see that the priest can't eat from the offering that he's had because no one should benefit from their sin. And so there's a lot about the weight of sin here, isn't there? And yet, there's a lot about God's grace. Him seeing just how heavy our sin is, how much blood needs to be shed for God to be just. And he says, come to me, and I will do that for you. And now, one of the challenges that we have as Christians is, I've been able to show you, I hope, through that verse in Deuteronomy, through looking at Leviticus here, that the life of the ancient Israelites was a life of constant introspection. They were thinking, how can I show God's holiness? How can I show that I belong to him? I will do all of these things to show that I'm set apart and that I belong to him. Well, the Christian also lives a constant life of introspection, not of legalism, not of thinking, am I sinning now? But of thinking, I love my king. I want to live for him. I want him to show me the best way that I can live and serve him. That's what we should read when we read Leviticus chapter 4. But how does all this stuff point us to Jesus? Go to Hebrews chapter 8 as we begin to think about the reality. Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice. And where does he go to offer it? Hebrews chapter 8. Let's read verses 1 and 2 and verse 5. Now, the main point of what we're saying is this, Hebrews 8.1. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves, where? In the sanctuary, the true tabernacle, set up by the Lord, not by a mere human being. Covers 5. They serve at a sanctuary 
that is a copy and a shadow. This century we're talking about, the tabernacle, is a copy and a shadow of what, it, uh, of what is in heaven. When Jesus says that we should read the Old Testament as a copy pointing to him, it's almost as if we're saying, if you were to see someone coming around the corner, you'll see their shadow. And you can see a little bit of what they look like, but it's only when they actually turn up, okay? I mean, you still, I couldn't find a good picture, so you still can't see exactly what they look like, but you know what I mean. Um, it's only when the person actually turns around the corner and they're in the full sunlight that you can see what they are, that you can see all of their facial features. In a similar way, we look at this tabernacle, we look at the sacrifice, and you know, we're confronted with the fact that we, when we offer our offering and we go away, we go back home, we're going to sin again at some point. We're going to have to come back and atone for our sin and receive God's forgiveness and again and again and again and again. Not Jesus. Not the sinless Lamb of God. When you look at chapter 9 and you ask the question, what did it do it for them then? Forgiveness and atonement. What, is it, what does Jesus do that's better? You look at Hebrews chapter 9 from verse 23 onwards and we're going to look at some things. It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. We need something better than the blood of animals. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself. He went to the presence of God to die for our sins, to pay, now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again, the way that the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood. Otherwise, Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But he has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. How does this point to Jesus? It's obvious now, isn't it? His blood is superior. His blood, his life sacrifice for us covers even the sins we don't even know about before the words come out of our mouth of confession, he can forgive. Look at something interesting in Leviticus chapter 6, verse 27. The holy meat, when someone touches it, instead of the meat becoming impure, they become holy. How interesting. If you look at it, let's read it together. 627, whatever touches any of the flesh will become holy. And if any of the blood is spattered on a garment, it must, you must wash it in the sanctuary area. If you touched a carcass, if you touched a leper, if you touched semen or blood, you become impure. Jesus comes in the Gospels. He can touch the leper. He's not the one who becomes impure. He makes pure. He purifies by his very touch. How awesome that is. That this offering points to a Jesus whose ministry is not afraid of the unholy, but who can make holy the unholy. Once for all, he cleanses us. Hebrews 9.14 talks about how he cleanses our consciences. And I think already that leads us to the final bit, the response 
But think about this. The book of Hebrews says that when you sinned and you polluted the tabernacle, you polluted your relationship with God, God's blood covered you temporarily through the animal. But now Jesus doesn't only cleanse us from the outside, but he gives us a new mind. He gives us a new heart that will want to love God. And he promises, Hebrews 9, 28, that he will come again, not to sacrifice himself again, but to finish the purification that he starts in, our, in the hearts of every Christian who trusts in him. And so part of our response is already to say, I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful that this is what he has done, that he's begun to cleanse my heart now, that I can know forgiveness forever. He cleanses not a tabernacle, but he cleanses you and I so that God can live in us. His blood is enough. That's why for you and for me, 1 John 1, 9 is, should be burnt in your memory. Listen to it. If we confess our sins, no sin is too big or too small, we can confess it. He is faithful because he promised that just like the sin offering, because the sacrifice of Jesus is enough, he will forgive. He promised he's faithful. And he is just. He has bought us. His blood is enough. And will forgive us our sins and purify us purify so that we can be in relationship with him when we see what is involved in our atonement what we get we get god we get him if we are purified that's why we christians care to be forgiven because god is our prize now and forever when he's finished sanctifying us and we get to enjoy his presence that's why in a moment we're gonna sing here is love vast as the ocean we're just wowed by a love that would cleanse and purify atonement and forgiveness leading to a relationship with him let's pray a prayer of gratitude now let me give you a moment for you to just quiet in your heart before god and speak to him before i pray Hebrews 9.28 reads, Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Lord Jesus, we long for this day. You've begun a work in our hearts. You have purified us from sin and you've purchased our sanctification, so that in eternity with you, there'll be no sin between us. There'll only be joy in your presence. We pray that everyone here tonight who has heard of this would know that if they feel dirty before you, because they have sinned, if they are impure, if their sin has polluted their relationship with you, whether it's a taboo sin, or whether it's a sin that is quite acceptable in this society, like greed, Father, speak to them now in their hearts that they can be cleansed because of Jesus. That if they are a Christian, they can come and confess their sins to you because you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thank you for your great love for us. Thank you that no sin could ever separate us when we lay our hands on Jesus in faith. In his name we pray.
Amen. Amen. Let's engage with this.